Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Dan Schneider of Cosmoetica.com. He is a poet, a, a critic, short story writer, novelist, and more recently a playwright. And we're going to discuss uh, kind of like the foundations of art, some art theory, uh, kind of ideas that I've been trying to work through on my own for the last couple of years. And, um, uh, you know, as, as time passes uh, and, you know, the more kind of artistic work that you work on, uh, you eventually start thinking about, you know, how can I push boundaries further and further without going away from the foundation of what art is? And you see all sorts of failed experiments in the past, and, you know, you never want to be in that situation yourself. So I have Dan here who is going to uh, walk us through some of my questions. And for anyone that's not familiar with my work uh, or is just coming to this for the first time, uh, Dan Schneider, somebody that I met uh, over a decade ago at this point, um, I, I definitely credit him for any artistic work that I've done thus far. When I read his essays on the arts, he, he provided a kind of blueprint and foundation for me personally um, that I, I was able to eventually use to create arts on my own. And this is true of so many people that came to Cosmoetica. Uh, so many people in the Cosmoetica orbit, they started with the essays and they eventually tried their hand at the arts and, and many of them ended up being successful. So I, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Uh, and Dan, if you want to just add anything else about yourself that I might have missed, go ahead. Yeah, so Cosmoetica will be up for 20 years uh, this coming January. And uh, I probably had, oh God, close to 400, 500,000 emails from people. Most of them are submissions. Uh, very few of them are, are of any interest or people who really want to improve. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get, I've gotten many emails from around the world. Uh, and uh, I get emails from people just asking about the arts in general. Most of the time they're just like, who's your favorite filmmaker? What do you think of this actor? And I don't even bother answering them anymore. I just simply don't have time. I get a couple of thousand emails uh, a week, even today, even though Cosmoetic in a certain sense is past the prime uh, of its prime in terms of my writing essays about things. The last five years or so, I've been doing mostly videos, uh, uh, interviews with people and uh, other stuff about art. Um, but the, the, the actual written part still gets a lot of uh, views. Uh, I haven't been able to really penetrate in any meaningful way uh, within uh, YouTube circles because YouTube is unfortunately even lower down on the common denominator rung than uh, just the regular internet. But uh, uh, even just today, I got an email from the boyfriend of someone who uh, was, uh, was in contact with me, a, a very nefarious person. Uh, asking me about that person. And so, you know, you get these odd little comments and emails from people from years past. So it's, I wouldn't say it's an extended family, but uh, there are certainly people that have been on my e-list and I, I hear from, and when I find out that they're doing something, they've moved to different countries or, or whatnot. It's interesting to see how their lives go. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, and this just reminded me, so you haven't written essays in a few years now. Uh, is that something that you want to get back to? Um, like, in, just in terms of criticism, do you see yourself either doing uh, more critical essays or um, uh, just, you know, perhaps even having a, a book of artistic criticism at some point? 
I'd sooner do the poems again. I mean, once I retire, I mean, I'm human and uh, I'm 55 and I do a lot of physical labor and I work for a, a company that I don't particularly like and I don't like that I don't like it. But uh, if I if I could retire and when I retire in a decade or so, uh, I'll probably use that extra time to do more writing and hopefully get back to poetry because let's see, I stopped writing poems in 05, so I'll say another decade. It'd be a 25-year period that I didn't write poems, so it'd be interesting to see what I could do. I know I can write poems, but it, going back and forth with limited time between the prose mindset and the poetry mindset, because, for example, I always wrote my poems out longhand. I can't do that with, with uh, writing prose, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but I don't think I could write poems just by typing. I, I'd have to write them out longhand. Uh, it's something more organic, deeper within one. So I'd, I'd sooner want to go back to writing poetry than writing essays. And how many times can you say the most obvious things? I mean, uh, uh, the, the nostra that I put through uh, in 1,200, 1,300 essays, how many times can you say the most obvious things when there's an obvious work of good or bad art? Um, with poetry, you can say things infinitely. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I noticed in terms of switching back and forth, I mean, when I first uh, emailed you, I was like 19, 20 years old. And the idea back then was like, I wanted to write poetry. And after a couple of years, I, I sort of uh, stopped and I just did only prose since then. And I remember just like walking around the street, you know, as a teenager and, you know, everything would sort of fit kind of poetically, right? You'd make some kind of observation or you'd have some kind of interaction and you'd see like the architecture of a poem emerging from that. Um, and when I moved to like writing, writing novels and essays, uh, that switched, right? It, the, the architecture was, uh, uh, more or less the kind of architecture you'd expect from prose. Like, do you notice that yourself? Like when you're in a prose versus poetry mindset, just kind of the way that you subtly filter the world, it's just kind of different. Do you notice that? Well, I found that, uh, I get the same impulses. Um, I recently ran over or hit a, a baby deer going home from work one morning about a month or so ago. And it would have been a perfect thing to do a poem about. Uh, but instead, I'm, I'm repurposing it uh, for this novel that I'm writing now. And uh, so it's the same impulse, but it's just sort of aiming it in a different area and then doing certain things with it. With poetry, you're always trying to condense things down to its most distilled form. Whereas with prose, you can use something over and over again and uh, use it in different ways. Uh, someone, I, it might have been Peter Cleese who does most of the interviews with me about certain works that I do, uh, or maybe it might have been maybe Tom, his husband, or, or someone else uh, had pointed out that uh, you can see through my true life, through various novels, through short stories, through poems, certain maybe top dozen or two uh, events in my life that I keep going back to, but come at it from different areas in poetry. And you could see the same the same event that happened to me as a place in a short story, in a lyric poem, in a dramatic poem, in a play, in a long novel. And it gives a sort of parallax of what that might have been, which would be a boon. I mean, anyone trying to decipher my life after I'm dead through my writing would have just a basic heart on because it's 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 a very interesting thing. It's sort of like the, what uh, I think you were talking about Rembrandt with Joel. Uh, Rembrandt uh, going back and forth to his own face. Um, you compare that to someone like Frida Kahlo, who, who's 
who's just putting herself in these sort of gross-out situations. Not only was she not technically in Rembrandt's league, but she wasn't uh, intellectually in his league either. Whereas you look at Rembrandt, and you can see in the hundreds of portraits that he did, these little things, I'm closer to a Rembrandt in terms of the issues that have happened, the events that have happened in my life that are coming at them from different angles. Yeah. Um, so, so let's just use that as a, a jump-off point to... to uh, get into definitions of, of art. I did this with Joe last time, and um, you know it, it's just a very important thing to get out of the way, right? Uh, I feel like one of the biggest barriers for discussing the arts uh, today is, uh, for the first time, like we have so many more conceptions or definitions of art. You know, many of them bad, incorrect, whatever. But the fact is, you know, lots of people believe all sorts of things, and. Um, how would you define art? And uh, I think my definition is pretty similar to yours. Like I, I just say that uh, art is a communication of, ide of ideas with an emphasis on how. And I think that's very useful because it, it immediately makes people think about um, uh, just like the, the practical side, right? Like if, if, if you're forced to think of art as a how you immediately think, okay, well, you know, I, I, you know, I read this book of history. That was a kind of how it had it all, its own kind of techniques, its own methodologies. Um, when I think of a poem, there's like a how there, it's, it's somehow different. When I think of a painting that that's also different, there's a set of hows there as well. Um, and, and it's always good. Like when you're thinking about the arts or talking about the arts to always bring the conversation back to some something that is immediately tangible, something that people can immediately uh, comprehend so that it, you, you could talk about things that, that actually have some level of reality. Um, so, so how would you define, define the arts? I mean, I'd say basically two ways. One, I think Joel has said it's a higher form of communication, and I, I've always agreed with that. And uh, I also think art has to translate the cosmos or reality as we know it, i.e., you know, to, to use... Uh, uh, a few examples from different arts. Uh, if you look at, uh, I think you were talking about sculpting and Michelangelo, and I don't know if it's Michelangelo, but there's a famous sculpture all in white with a woman sitting on a man's knee. And it's a it's either a classical sculpture, I think it's Michelangelo or the Renaissance. And you can see the fingers of the man in, in the woman's hips. And you can see that he, I don't know if he's ready to copulate or just copying a feel, but you can, here you have this hard uh, white rock substance. I don't know what the, the actual rock form was. Or, uh, it must be marble, I would think. Uh, but it actually looks like that you can almost see the tension in the fingers pressing into the woman's uh, hip and, and skin. Um, and even in something as simple as that, you get the verisimilitude or the simulacrum of reality, but it's something on a higher level because I believe it's bigger than life. It's probably 1.5 times uh, human size. And if you actually look at it, uh, it, it, it gives a, a, a slight shift of perspective because it's almost like you're a ghost from looking at, at the human form from the outside for the first time. Um, in terms of translating reality uh, with, uh, with writing, I think it's a bit more obvious because writing is next to some kind of telepathic art form if we were ever to develop telepathy or if we get, for example, implants in a mind and are hooked up to a high mind in 50 or 100 or 200 years, whatever it might be. Writing is the closest you can get to total abstraction because you're talking squiggles on a medium. 
this uh, and and from that you can get simple concepts like what is an apple uh you know what is love to higher concepts where you put these together into sentences and paragraphs or stanzas and and whatnot and you can look at something like uh you know 19th century whaling well moby dick takes that on but it it takes it on in a in a, a deeper way uh, a lazy person bad definitions of art you know, currently out there are things like, well, art is what asks questions. And I've said this many times. Moby, uh, Moby Dick was not written by Herman Melville because he wanted to ask you a fucking question. Melville had the answers. They're in the text. It's there. You have to get it. You may not be able to get it. You may not appreciate what his answer is, but the answer is there. And all great artists have answers to whatever the hell thing you know, spurs them to write or to create uh, visual art or uh, whether it's film or or whether it's music uh, you know uh, it, it's there and so art translates these parts of the cosmos that your average person 99.99 percent of people don't even think of to ask but once they are confronted by it if they have something that that a negative capability of, of John Keats's description uh, that they can make that that they can get that leap once it's presented to them. Then that's basically when art is at its best because it it, it connects these things, it it brings those ideas together, and it hopefully clarifies the thinking process for people who are even not artists. Yeah, and, you know, we could have these um, uh, additive uh, kind of uh, definitions, right? Um, and it's, it's always going to come down to uh, uh, sort of, you know, ideas at the highest level. Uh, and I also think it's useful to think about art, you know, in, in a way where you where you kind of subtract from the definition. So, for example, one thing that I've thought about is, uh, you know, when you imagine what art is or could be, and you think of all these definitions and you think of, you know, I, I you know, I want to make sure to to capture this element or that element element. Um, you could also think about, well, what can't I have like in this art? Right. And one thing that comes to me is you can't like like whatever art is, it probably will not look like the next two hours, for example, of your life, right? Uh, unfiltered, uh, you know, uh, unfractured. You can't just, for example, take a video camera and go around with it, just live recording yourself, doing various, you know, banal tasks and expect that that in, in of itself will be art. Perhaps you could then go into the footage, you could uh, uh, slice it up in some way, you could, you could add, you know, uh, other audio tracks, but you need to have some kind of narrative uh, emerging from it. Life as it is, right? It doesn't necessarily have a narrative, especially if you take a kind of like random sampling. Um, uh, you, 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 you can't just expect to do the whole thing of, I'm going to uh, leave a, a video camera on the street for 12 hours. And, and hopefully that is going to be a film, right? Because in, in almost no cases will, will the drama of those 12 hours rise to, to anything that is artistic, to anything that has any kind of narrative other than the most kind of banal sort of thing. Um, well, just, just this morning, I, I saw something online, uh, I think before I went to do some grocery shopping. Uh, and it was the whole thing that well, everybody has a story. Okay, but not, but the vast majority of stories are not worth hearing, that they're, they're dull, that, you know, I mean, you can get a great artist and you could take him out to visit your Aunt Henrietta or uh, your neighbor's son who might be, have some, and that artist can see the, 
the 1% of that person's life that you could put together to make maybe a passable artistic story. Uh, but the vast majority of people live dull lives. They don't ever question anything. And, you know, their, their biggest joy in life is maybe uh, coming home, uh, to, you know, after if they're retired and they're going to watch uh, Drew Carey on The Price is Right or they're going to write or they're going to watch, uh, you know, uh, the talk show, uh, The View with Whoopi Goldberg or at night they might come home and watch their favorite cable show or, or something. Um, most lives, uh, most people don't have even an interest in the arts in any real sense. Uh, I mean, you you have to recognize the reality that while art is, in my opinion, the highest pursuit, even higher than science because it's creating, it's not just discovering what's there. But most people, you know, they can get along pretty fine without art. Uh, you know, yes, they'll listen to music, pop music, but, you know, you can only listen for so long to, to even the best bands uh, and you get to to a point where it, it just sort of blends out and uh, most people are satisfied with that. Art is always going to be for that small percentage of the population and that's the percentage of the population that will always move society forward. They are going to be doing the heavy lifting. They are going to be the, doing the dragging. They will take the rest of society with them, kicking or screaming. Um, you know, most people can't make up you know, here we are in an election year 2020. Most people don't even have the intelligence to want to not vote Democratic or Republican here in the, the U.S. You think they're going to be able to make otherwise decisions? No. Yeah. Um, so uh, when we when we think about uh, those, you know, those kinds of uh, uh, definitions and we, we think about like, you know, what kind of narrative life might have or might not have, uh, it always brings me back to, well, okay, so if, if we start with these definitions now, these are the conclusions that we come to, um, what can we say about like all the sort of background noise that, that's leading up to the arts, right? Because you've often said that there is some point in human history where we make a transition from a, a, a small A art or arts, arts and crafts, that sort of thing, to capital A art, right? Which is kind of what we're talking about. And uh, I'm just wondering, what is, what is your idea uh, in terms of how all of this might have emerged? Because when I think about it, you know, I can just imagine, you know, just just biologically modern human beings that um, they're starting with like basic aesthetic experiences, right, which are separate from the arts. Aesthetic experiences such as, you know, they might uh, personally enjoy seeing a, a certain kind of landscape, right, or a vista out in the distance. And the reason why they would uh, enjoy seeing a, a vista in the distance is uh, this is going to be associated with things like, um, you know, a, a land of plenty, right? Like if you have grasslands and if you have animals on those grasslands and you have, you know, uh, uh, berries growing and you have other forms of vegetation, these, these are things that, that in the kind of ancestral environment, they're going to provide you with some level of nourishment. They're going to allow you to survive. So it makes sense that human beings sort of adapted a kind of, uh, uh, you know, just broadly speaking, like a liking of 
uh, these these uh, uh, vistas. And, you know, we could start with that and then we start moving to, okay, now you could have tribes and you could have sort of like miniature societies. You have artisans emerging in these societies and, and they could start working on things like tools that have, you know, purely utilitarian functions. And then eventually you're going to have uh, 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 things that are not tools, but objects that have more so kind of like aesthetic functions, right? And then, you know, perhaps artisans of a special kind of skill uh, they they get compensated very well in these societies, and you know more and more people wish to be artisans. And then eventually you get some kind of you know perhaps like a luxury class or a society that allows for luxury. And then you could have people like Michelangelo, right? You could have you could have people that are making art uh, for art's sake, um, and and, and uh, like kind of like baked into all this is uh, you do have these aesthetic experiences, and because they're so biologically, you know, salient and strong, I think it's very easy for people to confuse aesthetics and aesthetic experience with capital A art, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, you might subjectively enjoy a song or you might subjectively enjoy something like knitting. And it's very, very, very um, attractive to, to just assume like, yeah, I'm just engaging in th this kind of, you know, capital A art. I wonder if you have any, any comments on that. Well, just to get back to the, the first point you made there, I mean, if you're someone like uh, Julian Jaynes, uh, and I, th I think you know who Julian Jaynes was, and he had the basic idea that sometime five, 6,000 years ago, the human mind changed, it complexed uh, uh, from a, a more, I guess, hunter-gatherer state, uh, and it basically coincides, I think, with civilization, that somehow the human mind, if you were to go back to say, what was it like? Otzi the Iceman, the bog mummy oh, that they found up in the Himalayas, or, or not the Himalayas, the Alps, uh, or whatnot. Uh, and if you could actually go back in time and interview him, and uh, uh, that his conception of the world would be radically different from ours, not just being more simple, but there would not have even in his mind have been an, ab an ability to think of, of things beyond just the, I need to get to this place, I need to do that, I need to eat this, I need to do that, I need to talk with the, the clan leader or whatnot. Now, I don't know if that's particularly true. I doubt it because, you know, if you go back even far longer than Otzi the Iceman, you know, you had the caves of Lascaux and you had the, the Nisivan caves and the, the Neanderthal caves. And, and it, it's clear that uh, there were at least some individuals that were looking to project moments of their existence onto the walls, that whether it's painting saber-toothed cats or mammoths or other tribesmen. Um, uh, and this might have been the first inklings of of art. I, I doubt that language uh, was the first art. Language is the most difficult thing. So my guess is that storytelling proper and, and language and early attempts at memorizing stories uh, via poetry be, just being spoken were probably the last arts to come along probably arts and crafts the the guy who could make the best sturdiest baskets was the guy who taught his son who taught his son who taught his son and eventually the great-grandson was not just making the best baskets sturdy wise but was making them with a little bit more of a flair than his great-grandfather did yeah. and that became artisan craftsmanship and then at some point you know, uh, maybe the painting of ceramics became more important to some tribal leaders and maybe they put the tribal crest on certain stuff and the development of these kinds of things. 
uh, it was probably all egoistic initially and you know there's still the ego in art i have an ego you have an ego any artist of any merit is going to have an ego it's it's whether the ego overwhelms the art um so coming up more than likely uh art developed as an egoistic pursuit but then it was probably at some point rewarded by the people who were in control of whatever social uh structure there was and as the civilization got more sedentary and more specialized uh, we developed other art forms we went from cabinet makers to to people who could design uh, what is it called queen anne furniture or whatever it is uh, and then people who actually did start to memorize poetry the, the 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 simple poems they could memorize about a visit to in the tribal chieftain's hut and being congratulated for a great kill suddenly became little uh tales of of warriors that came out and you got these sagas and and you got the skulls of of Norway you got these epopee of of the classical world um and so everything you know uh, uh, evolves out but again it's going to get more complex you know certainly shakespeare if you look at drama which is one of the oldest forms of art you know the greeks you know even even when you look at the stuff that survived whether it's euripides or aristophanes or or what not uh it's very simple uh, a major innovation was to have a chorus and another major innovation was to have uh people not just stand there declaiming things but to actually interact with other actors on the stage these are very gut level basic simple things and people like marlowe and, and shakespeare and ben johnson certainly moved beyond them but again if you look at them you know despite the despite the Harold Bloom's of the world that would have you think that all great art stopped when Shakespeare was was uh, dead uh I mean the, the modernists of the late 19th century Ibsen and uh uh what's his name Shaw and uh, then later on the, the Americans uh are so far in advance and you know I'd say you know my plays are far in advance of them but uh everything starts off simple uh and that it has to complex and the the interesting about artists to find how how those things go and where you get into these low peers like we're currently in in the modern world uh i mean it's going to end at some point it has to uh, unless we kill ourselves uh, you know uh, hopefully art isn't going to stagnate and we're not going to you know uh, end up uh, killing ourselves with global warming or anything else but who knows yeah, I think we said there's a very critical, you know, like it's very important to to remember that art, uh, I mean, it, it it's it's a product of reality. It's not necessarily uh, all that different from reality. Like it's woven from the fabric of reality. Um, and you have to treat it as, as something that does change. It does improve, right? Because when it comes to like pretty much any other human pursuit, right, we would not ever deny that the sciences have improved since like 2000 years ago, right? Um, we wouldn't even deny that things that have maybe perhaps a little bit more subjectivity, such as, you know, morality or, or, or even kind of like, you know, objective ethics, uh, though, you know, like compared to like the, the ethical systems that were being proposed, you know, by like classical Greek philosophers, uh, uh, the, the ethical systems that are being proposed uh, today, right, over the last like 50 years, they're so much richer, right? They're so much more just and fair and they're able to you know take into account all, all these variables and factors that back then like people just wouldn't even be able to conceptualize so uh, the arts in that way they are they are going to improve over time 
Um, and, and it's very uh, important to remember that this is not like it's not some kind of like field of magic, right? Like uh, uh, art is not magic. Art is a material thing. You could interact with it. You can engage with it. And, and, and uh, you know, that, that's just very important to remember. And if you do remember that, you know, and, and you and you think that you are an artist or you want to be an artist, that makes the process a whole lot easier, right? You don't have to have this kind of uh, worshipful feeling of artists, right? You could have a respect and an awe. But you don't have to have the worship and you don't have to make like uh, absurd pronouncements like you said with uh, uh, Harold Bloom, for example. Um, none of that is, is, is necessary. Uh, and one more comment on this. Um, you mentioned a, a Julian uh, a Jane. And from what I remember, like I, I think his book, I forget the title of it, but I think his book, I think the consensus now is that it has not aged very well in terms of like, you know, uh, modern scientific uh, findings. And I also find this, um, uh, there's, there, there are people that try to do like artistic criticism rooted in biology or rooted in like Darwinian evolution. And a mm -hmm. lot of it just strikes me uh, as kind of silly. Like they would, you know, they would hook up like, you know, people to these electrodes to see, you know, the parts of the brain that might flare up when they're reading like Jane Austen and, you know, uh, this flare up. And if you have enough people's brains that flare up a certain way, that means that this particular line of Jane Austen is particularly good, which is, you know, that things don't work that way. Um, well, let, me, let me just, before you move on, let me just make a, a couple of points. Number one, I, people fall into this utopian ideal, this trap that somehow in 500 or 1,000 years, and it keeps moving further, a, a guy like Ray Kurzweil is one of these people who propagates this crap in science, is that everyone is going to have an appreciation for the earth. Everyone is going to be put. Everyone is great. No, put, uh, art is always going to be a very small, thin slice at the top of, of society, as I said, and the greatest artists are those that pull society forward. You're never going to have, you know, uh, the vast majority of people appreciating art, certainly not the art that's presented in their own generation. People often mistake creativity, real deep fundamental creativity, that thing that's like a, a, a jet plane just roaring by with mere cleverness. Uh, uh, in, in art and in life, you have people who are clever. They can do these little things that that entangle someone's mind for a little bit, and people think, "Oh, isn't that creative or whatnot?" But it, it's not really. Uh, it's. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I, just before an hour or so before we were talking, I was looking, trying to look up some people who are experts about Sargon of Akkad, not the the wacky British uh, uh, YouTuber, but the the real Sargon from. Surprise! Uh, his name. Yeah, uh, Carl Benjamin is yeah, the name. I'm surprised that you know they know who that person is. No, because I I seen seen it. You know, when I I wrote I wrote a trilogy of plays, so I've done now a couple of interviews about Alexander the Great and Cyrus. I'm still trying to find someone to do Sargon. I got one guy, but anyway, uh, I was trying to look some people up, and I came across uh, I came across uh, this uh, uh, this book uh, uh, written called Mesopotamia that came up in the search. And it's by a guy named, uh, what was his name? Arthur Necessian. And I looked at, he, he's apparently a writer a few years older than me who lives in New York. And it, it's a fiction book, but I, I looked at his stuff up and he supposedly got a huge book coming out with like 1500 pages called The Five Books of Robert Moses. And I looked up some of the writing and it's utterly generic. It, it, it's it's a typical hipster poetry stuff. There's not. I, I read three or four pages, and I looked up this some three or four pages of this with him. And his writing is so generic. But the the whole cleverness thing here is that oh, we're going to take uh, this this writer 
and he's gonna he's gonna reference things to the Near East, Moses, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, but it's gonna be set in in New York City, and it's gonna be totally generic. And the the book says much better than Pinchon or whatnot. And I, from what I read, it's the same it's the same cloth that Pinchon and David Foster Wallace are cut from. Uh, and even there, there's not even really cleverness. But the the whole conceit. The, the whole, quote, clever conceit is is that we're going to take a totally generic writer, we're going to try to link him to something higher, Mesopotamian, the, 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 the classical antiquity, and we're going to take someone who's generic and, and just link it via so, him using a certain title in a book. And this is not, this is not what, what art is. And I'll tell you, in a thousand years, if we're in Jupiter colony uh, on Europa, wherever we go, uh, they're going to be they're going to be bad artists, mostly bad artists there. So, getting back to the idea of the utopia, we're never going to have any society where art is rampantly uh, great. Even in golden ages in 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 Italy during uh, the golden age of art, there with Michelangelo and and whatnot. Even in the golden ages where there were kings and emperors that supported certain arts in China and in Persia and whatnot, and even in the Mongol Empire. Uh, it was still a very thin slice. The vast majority of people are never going to be truly nor deeply affected by art. They can't be. Uh, I explain this to my wife all the time. These are people that functionally just don't have it. But that's not a bad thing because if everyone was writing art, civilization or creating art, civilization would stop. You can't just have, you need drones in the best sense of the term drone. You need drones for a society uh, just like you need artists. But you need a lot more drones than artists to keep things going. That's the reality that a lot of artists don't want to face. They want to say, oh, art's the end all and be all. Art is a great thing. It's, I think, the highest pursuit of mankind. But in and of itself, it cannot survive with everything else. Without everything else, rather. Yeah, I, you know, I think by definition, you're right. Uh when it comes to the arts, like it, it has to be a pursuit that w when it comes to like the highest accomplishments, I mean, if, we, if we're even beginning with this phrase, the highest accomplishments, like that, that is not going to include a whole lot of people. But I can also imagine a situation down the road where, for example, so, you know, let's assume that, you know, it's, it's, it's a century from today. Uh, your ideas about art have now become the, the mainstream. It's, it's now accepted orthodoxy. Um, even if like so many people at, in that time period are going to like reject great artists, uh, of their own, um, the fact that that blueprint exists, I, I can definitely imagine a society where more people as a percentage could be great artists. Like, uh, I, I, I sort of alluded to this earlier and just to flesh this out more, uh, you know, like when I was first thinking about you know, how maybe I could be a writer. This was purely because I, I came across a couple of books as a teenager. I remember reading Kazuo Shiguro's Remains of the Day, and I, I immediately knew it was just a, just a great novel. And I remember thinking, like, I wish that I had the vocabulary to express why this is a great novel. I don't know why it is, but I just know that it, in fact, is. And I had a similar feeling when I was reading County Cullen's poetry. Um, and and uh, when I came across uh, your work as a blueprint, uh, this really just kind of like fit all these pieces together. So 
in a world where your blueprint didn't exist, I do believe that I probably would not have really become, you know, uh, an artist in any way or really even like developed uh, these interests any further than I had as a teenager. Uh, and, and, you know, that probably goes for a lot of people. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that on the one hand, you know, I consider you the greatest artist, uh, you know, in the world. On the other hand, I consider uh, Jessica to be like, you know, pretty close to you in that regard. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, she, you know, you're married together, right? And 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 she also kind of like fed off of this blueprint. You know, it's not a coincidence that uh, many of the people that, that do send you novels, right, uh, or, or poetry on the E-list, um, they also fed off of this blueprint. So I, I can imagine a sort of baseline being established where people don't necessarily fall all the way back to like the the david foster wallace level stuff right or they don't fall all the way back to like the lowest of the low like like some of that we're going to talk about uh your your uh, uh camelot quintet next and um you know like some of the myths that that your quintet is based on it's just really really bad writing like i can imagine a situation where that no no longer really exists just like we don't really have like ethical systems being proposed by philosophers today that are as grisly as the kind of ethical systems that might have existed 2000 years ago right it's just like we're past that point as a civilization uh like do you have any well, comments on that well let, yeah let me burst your bubble a little bit here i think you're being too optimistic um uh, and i i try to be optimistic in life um and let me let me give another example from this morning because I was writing uh, a couple of thousand words in my novel, and I'm in one of those low periods where I've I've now written about I know over 500 pages there, and I'm I'm I've got the thing, and I'm 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 in between sort of uh, different uh, drafts of it, and I'm I'm just doing the grunt work now for for a week or so as I'm my body is trying to relax a little bit, but I came across I was looking. Uh, watching some YouTube videos and something really annoyed me. Now, you know, Schrodinger's cat, you know, the, the idea of Schrodinger's cat about the cat being in a box and we don't know if it's alive or dead unless we send something in there. It's in a superposition. And this video angered me because it's from one of the more credible YouTube science videos. And I, I, I'll get, I'll, I'll tie this into art in, in a moment. Um, and it goes on talking about, well, Schrodinger, uh, his, we, the cat is both dead and alive uh, until we have some way of measuring whether it's dead or alive. It's in a superposition. And they keep saying this as if this is what Schrodinger meant, totally missing the fact that the whole point of Schrodinger's cat, the very reason he used this example was because he knew and was showing how absolutely absurd that is. The cat is either dead or alive. There aren't two cats. You cannot split the universe into quantum things. There aren't in an infinity of universes splitting off, uh, becoming. This is just theoretical uh, stuff that he was proposing. Uh, and the fact that this science video didn't get that. And for every thousand videos or, or references to Schrodinger's cat that you get out on the internet, maybe one gets it right in saying that this was Schrodinger making fun of that very kind of supposition. And Here's the point where it gets back to art. The idea of a cat being in superposition and forgetting all the technical, uh, philosophical, and, and sciencey terms, it's a very simple concept to grasp. Much more simple than trying to grasp the narrative of Moby Dick or Tristram Shandy or trying to understand even a simpler art form like music. Try to understand uh, how, how the musical notes 
brachiate with, within a, a Beethoven concerto and compare them to the simple idea of uh, cats are not alive and dead unless someone looks at it. Uh, Schrodinger had a very simple idea. He was mocking the very idea that these people claim that he was supporting and they don't get it now, still almost a century going on since he proposed it, 75, 80 years, whatever it is. And how the hell can you get people? And this person who, who does these science videos, these people who do these science videos are generally well-educated. They've gone to college. They are looking to teach people and they're getting the most simple things wrong. You cannot be telling me that, that if you can't get what Schrodinger's cat was about, that you're going to get what Moby Dick was about. And this is, this is, this is the most frustrating thing. And this is, uh, you know, so if, if the simple stuff of science, relatively simple, compared to art, is, is flummoxing people for decades. How in the fuck are you going to do it with art? So I'm not, as, I'm, not as, uh, I'm not as optimistic as you are. I think that eventually people will come around to see some of the things that I've said are, are very obvious, but it's going to take a lot of work, and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah, well, what I was saying was, I mean, like, for example, like, um, you, you know, uh, if we go back even a century – uh, the past century, century and a half, you know, has been just, uh, just absolutely great for the arts in the sense that we had more great artists, right, pushing boundaries and doing it well, right, not just pushing boundaries for its own sake, but actually doing it well compared to like any other point in human history. Like, you know, is that a, a coincidence, right? Like, like Moby Dick, for example, it could not have emerged at any other time. Um, uh, we can't have, uh, leaves of grass emerging a thousand years ago because, well, you know, first of all, like, you know, th there was, there was no sense that you could really go, uh, that far in terms of like, you know, breaking the, the, uh, the rules as it were uh, of poetry. Um, and, and same thing now, like you, Dan Schneider, you could not have really existed with these ideas uh, at any other point in human history, right? It, it, it would be pretty unlikely if, if that were in fact the case. Like, it just, I could not, I could not have written a Norwegian in the family without Word. You know, Word documents. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have typed it all out and said it the way I, because if you remember, I, I do a lot of type. I couldn't have done that, that literally. Yeah. So. The, the, the functionality of being able to present ideas in that way in in, in blocks of text here and there uh, did not exist. So, yeah, I, I could not have written that book uh, within um, in any other time before the year 2000, say. But, like, but don't you think that, you know, sometime in the future, there's going to be like, you know, a, a niche class of like super geeks that are like into the arts and that are, you know, trying to... Uh, again, like work through your blueprint, you know, and, and they truly understand what we're getting at. Because again, like, you know, like, like whenever you have a discovery such as, you know, discovering the arts or the sciences, that does tend to open up the floodgates, right? It does tend to open up like, you know, a, a new kind of wave of discoveries or just, just quickly just just come one after the other, one after the other. Uh, I, I don't imagine like going back to what we said about the arts, given that this has happened with like pretty much any other discipline, I don't really imagine that the arts will be totally immune from it. Although I do agree that like just generally speaking, most people, they will not be artists and most people will not be able to understand or appreciate the arts. And they frankly won't even really care. Right. Uh, but, 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 uh, most, but most of them will be cultists. Most of them won't really understand. Think now, you, you said we, we've known each other 13 years or something. Yeah. Think of uh, the number of people who've been on the E-list 
who were regulars for two or three years. And, you know, oh, Dan, can you look at this? Can you look? And then I gave them some criticism and they didn't they didn't like the criticism or I said something that they politically disagreed with and they went off and they I hate Dan. I hate Dan. Well, they never really were were there for the art. They were there because think about if you look at I I know you found things on Reddit and other things where, you know, oh, Dan Schneider sucks or whatnot, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But these are people who have. These are the negative equivalents of some of the people who've been on the e-list. All they, you know, they think that, oh, Dan, uh, when Roger Ebert did his thing on me a decade or more ago, you know, they compared me to, who is that black critic who's an idiot who's always taking a contract, uh, Schwartz, no, De- uh, White. Uh, Armin, yeah, White. Uh, Armin, Armin White. Armin White, yeah, Armin White. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that I'm like, no, if you actually read it, I'm a lot more intelligent. I don't make, I don't, I mean, he writes clearly that Armin White from this childish, petulant position and his, his, his ideas are not supported intellectually by what he's putting forth. I'm not a provocateur. I'm just, I'm just telling you the things that are rather obvious because I'm not engaging in emotion. But people will say, well, you know, if you're not engaging in emotion, you clearly have a problem with dealing with emotion. Just like if, if you know, the all art is political stuff. If you're not engaged, if you think that art isn't political, well, then that's a political statement unto itself. But of course, you can say all art is about poodles uh, and the, the, the extent to which you don't want to engage with, with the idea of poodles in your art says something about your view of the world and poodles, which is, of course, an absurdity. But people don't see that it's just as absurd to, to parallax uh, complex things in just one ideological viewpoint. So everything is going to be put, pulled down to the lowest common denominator. Dan Schneider is not going to be a, a critic that they're going to understand or the work's going to be understood. A very thin slice will, you know, some of these people like a William Glass, who's who's a potentially great poet, someone like you or a few other people who've been on the E-list, but the vast majority of them are going to be like these people that the names, uh, I don't even remember all of them, but that come and go, and then I've said something, and then they hate me, or they, you know, blah, blah, blah. This happened when I ran the Uptown Poetry Group. Uh, uh, people just want to be accepted. They want to be in a group where these herd animals, so we have this herd mindset, and that's something that's anathema to me. But most of the people, good or bad, in 50 or 100 or 500 years, if, if they're talking about me versus Harold Bloom, these turn-of-the-century critics, they'll lump us together because there'll be enough time to pass. They won't recognize that he was 30 or 40 years older than me, and we'll be lumped together. And people, there, there's going to be some people that say, well, Schneider was clearly right. This guy, was the, this Bloom guy was, was, as I call him, the yutz from Yale. But the vast majority of people... It's just going to be a name thing. And if some charismatic figure in 200 years becomes a champion of the Schneiderian art view, they will look at him as rediscovering me the way I discovered or quote unquote discovered James Emanuel or something. And they'll, they'll, they'll latch onto my work as a byproduct of them trying to latch onto this latter day critic who's championing my work. This is the way human stuff goes. If, if it ameliorates people's lives in some way, that's great. But again, it's going to be a very, very thin layer at the top that will really get it. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't disagree with that kind of like, I guess, a numerical portion of the argument. What I'm saying basically is just that, uh, you know, we're just introducing certain variables that make other things possible. Like, uh, it, like, you know, it's obviously true that to have a society with luxury and a luxury class, 
uh, that in and of itself does not generate great art, right? Like the ma vast majority of people like of a luxury class, let's say in like ancient Rome, if they, you know, dabble in the arts, they're just going to be dabblers, right? They're not going to make anything uh, of value, but you do need that luxury class and some level of luxury to exist for people to have, you know, access to the arts, to be able to think about the arts, to be able to create art in a way that, you know, if you're looking at some sort of kind of like prehistorical tribe, that's just not going to be possible for just purely material reasons. And what I'm saying about Cosmoetica is this is simply like one of those variables that since that variable is in place, it allows for all sorts of potentials that might have kind of exist theoretically they're going to be allowed to kind of like, you know, uh, come to fruition in a sense. Again, like to use myself as an example, I do believe that without the Cosmoetica blueprint, you know, I, I, I can't see myself really going that far in the arts. Like I probably would have just been, you know, kind of confused and, and sort of, you know, just going with things that I instinctively enjoyed. And, you know, again, because I, I, I really had such a strong reaction to the remains of the day and because I had such a strong reaction to uh, uh, County Colin, that, that is an indication that I, I already sort of knew something instinctively, but th putting that Cosmoetica variable in place, it allows for things to happen that otherwise could never be. And even like in the example of ha uh, ha Harold Bloom, um, you know, the, the mere fact that you have criticized him and that you became a great artist, I think just from a purely level level of like charisma, the fact that people will look to you as like this progenitor of all this like great stuff, they're going to dismiss Harold Bloom simply because you criticized him. And maybe other critics that you never touched, they maybe would think like, oh, well, yeah, well, you know, this critic obviously, you know, might be saying something worthwhile, even if you would have, you know, criticized him. Um, you know, just missing that, that portion, I, I think just the force of your personality uh, is not going to allow people like Harold Bloom to exist like a century from now. I don't really well, see that happen. But, but, see, but see, the thing is, I don't want people to dismiss Bloom because I dismiss him or deconstruct. No, I, I agree, I agree. But, but that, that's, what, that's what happens, right? That's just, yeah. just kind of inevitable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely well, agree with that part. But, you know, the, the, whole, the whole issue, I think, comes down to people have to think for themselves. And, and as uh, one of the guys on the E-list uh, once said, thinking is hard and people don't want to think and people want to latch onto these ideas uh, that, that are bandied about good, bad, or indifferent. And they, they are going to latch onto them, whether I want them to or not. Um, the I, artists, a, a critic has to be a, a, a less selfish thing than an artist. You can have some good selfishness, but you also want people, to put the art out there so that people can uh, can take what you've done and build upon it. One of the problems with art and why it does it it, it hasn't moved as fast as forward uh, as science, I believe, is that artists are more intensely selfish. Not to say that scientists aren't selfish. Certainly, you have the Copes and the Marshes. They wanted to be the bone guy that discovered the great dinosaur. Or you had Leibniz and Newton with the calculus uh, and Tesla and, and Edison. And Tesla's a good example. I mean, you, if you looked online, you, you'd think Tesla was the, the greatest genius ever. But in reality, if you ask most scientists, Tesla was a mediocre scientist. Uh, you know, he had a lot of wacky, far out ideas. But it's a romantic notion that he was the he was the genius that was screwed over by society. You know, his ideas, uh, you know, are, are pretty easily dismissed now. A lot of his ideas about uh, electricity and and uh, and other things, um, uh, uh, much in the same way that Leonardo da Vinci's stuff, while it's it's fanciful, uh, da Vinci was probably a better uh, uh, artist than he was a scientist. Uh, but uh, it, 
you have to in art uh, try to clear the table to, to get other artists their room. You you don't want to be such a towering figure. Like uh, obviously Whitman is in a sense the bottleneck for which all poetry before Whitman funneled into Whitman and everything since has been touched by Whitman coming out all over the world. Even the most r remote uh, uh, tribal poetries, as they would call them, have been in some way affected by Walt Whitman. But this doesn't mean that Whit that you have to slavishly, uh, uh, or that, that Whitman uh, wanted people to just write like him. If you look at Hart Crane, if you look at Robinson Jefferson, if you look at Ezra Pound, even, uh, and these are just white males within a century of, of, of Whitman's coming, uh, they were certainly affected by him in, to a certain degree. But what often happens is there are a lot of selfish artists that want to be the Buddha. They just want people to follow them blindly and worship them, and they want to be the head of whatever ism there is. I don't ever want there to be a Schneiderism. I don't want it to be there critically. I don't want it to be there artistically. And, and you will know a fraud. Anyone who claims this is the way Dan Schneider would have written this in 500 years or 200 years, or Dan Schneider, don't listen to them. Because I don't have an ism, I don't have a, a worldview in that sense, other than uh, a few basic principles that you can take and 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 apply to whatever direction you're going in. Uh, it, it this gets back to what you had mentioned to Joel is that art being a verb more than a noun. The, the, it's how you do things, how you approach art. That's the thing that's more fundamental to what I do. You can't write like me, just like I couldn't, if you gave me a, a camera even and the best cinematographer, I, I couldn't or wouldn't want to make a film like Stanley Kubrick or Orson Welles, as great as they are. But a lot of people think that, that just aping a great artist in some way is, is becoming a great artist, and that's absolutely wrong. You have to have yourself in it. And I've had a number of people, a couple of guys on the E-list who've been sending me their poetry, and I'm saying, where are you in that poetry? You can write some technically good poems, uh, but, you know, they're, they're just generic. You have to put yourself in, in, in that in some way. Yeah, uh, th this reminds me of, um, I'm not sure if you ever had this thought yourself, but, uh, uh, you know, this ties to like the uniqueness of uh, individually great artists. Um, you know, when you think of anybody that you might know in your personal life, whether it's like people that you work with, or, uh, people that, you know, you might have dated, uh, family members, whatever. Um, everybody seems to have like something that is, uh, uniquely them, not in the sense that they necessarily have like great ideas about something or, you know, uh, say like memorable, uh, things or, or anything like that, but they have like a, a way of being a mode of being like a, a way of interacting, uh, with, with other people or with like physical objects that is just kind of like uniquely them, right? Like when I think of like anybody that I know, even if it's people that I don't necessarily like or even respect, uh, there's something j about them that is just like, oh yeah, that that's him. That you know, that's what he would do. Like, like uh, uh, and, and, you know, so, and when it comes to like great art, um, all that is is it's that kind of like baseline uh, human uniqueness. I don't, you know, I don't really want to use that phrase because I, I think it gives the wrong implications. Like people in general are not very unique, but the the, the kind of like baseline human uniqueness that I just described. Uh, if you take that and you combine it with a great artist, you're going to have material that nobody else is going to even b 
be able to replicate, like even, even if somebody is not even a great artist, even if they just have like, you know, very good short stories, for example, um, the kinds of stuff they would put into a story, that's just going to be uniquely them, right? It's it's going to be their concerns, their preoccupations, their beliefs, their, their you know, kind of like structures and, and superstructures, you know, whether into, whether not into, like all of that is going to be in some way reflected in the art. Well, I... I mentioned earlier about creativity and cleverness being uh, conflated and people often conflate uniqueness with specialness and they're not the same. Um, you could have, I mean, everyone is genetically unique. Um, uh, you are going to have uh, haplogroups and all these genetic terms that are, are unique to you, although you do have a twin brother. Uh, but even there, you can see you, you are two separate individual beings. Specialness is, is something that is different, though, than being just simply unique. Uh, specialness uh, comes from uh, a unique place, but something is done with that uniqueness. Uh, and this, this doesn't even have to be in the arts or sciences. You can have someone who maybe has a unique empathy. The woman who... Uh, the woman who mentored uh, Helen Keller, for example, I forget her name. Uh, the, Helen Keller, for those who don't know, was a, a blind and deaf mute girl in the late 19th, early 20th century. And she was taught by a woman whose, again, name I forget. But that woman was, you know, herself obviously very intelligent, was persistent, uh, helped educate uh, Helen Keller to become uh, a, a figure uh, that, and enlightened a lot of people about people with handicaps over a century ago. Uh, but that person, she had a specialness, but again, she wasn't a great artist. She wasn't a great, uh, she wasn't a great scientist, but there was something special about that uh, pedant, if we want to call her that. Um, uh, and uh, that, that, that is something that was worthwhile. Uh, but yeah, people often mistake this for that. Uh, and I think uniqueness and specialness are that every great artist has a certain level of individuation. You can't mistake Robinson Jeffers' uh, poetry for Walt Whitman's, even within just a, a, a single long line. You can tell by the subject matter that they deal with, how they do. Uh, uh, Robinson Jeffers is the, the guy who's on the outside looking in. He's got that camera the way Jacques Cousteau or the old uh, 1950s and 60s TV shows that would talk about going to Africa and, and seeing what he has that 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 documentarian kind of view. Walt Whitman, on the other hand, was always behind. The eye. You would never see the gray white beard of Whitman. He would always be just the eyes roaming through a crowded street or in the forest or, or huddling down by a fire. Um, the, the, the points of view of Whitman and Jeffers were almost totally opposite. They were sort of like Berg. I, I always can think of Whitman and Robinson Jeffers as Antonioni and Bergman, dealing with very similar things, uh, things but in totally different ways. Uh, Antonioni and Bergman, both dealing with the human dilemma, but Antonioni is far out and he's looking from the wrong end of a telescope at, at human beings. He doesn't want to be close to human beings, whereas Bergman is right up in the face. You can see the pores of the characters sweating. Yeah, this reminds me of, um, I remember like uh, uh, when I was in college, uh, we had some like blind readings of uh, poetry. There was there was some uh, a poem that, that came up for discussion and, and it was a poem that I never read before. But as I was reading it, um, I immediately knew like this just has to be Sylvia Plath. There's just no way that it's anybody else. And part of the reason why I thought that was, I, 
uh, although I had never read that poem before, it was in fact a great poem. And if it sounds so much like Sylvia Plath and it happens to be great, well, you know that nobody can do, you know, a great Sylvia Plath poem like Sylvia Plath, right? Everything that is kind of like unique about her, the kind of like, you know, a sinister sarcasm and all these other like little features that, you know, you read enough of it, you, you, you get a sense of what that's like. Um, you know, I just remember thinking overwhelmingly, like, this has to be Sylvia Plath. Like, nobody's going to do a great Sylvia Plath poem if it's not Sylvia Plath. Um, so, so that, that kind of goes back to, back to that. Um, well, and if you, if, if you listen to Sylvia Plath reading her poem, uh, I found this YouTube channel. It's just called Cody Carvel, C-O-D-Y-C-A-R-V-E-L, like Carvel, the old ice cream truck, I guess. Uh, and it has some programs from WNET, uh, the PBS uh, station in New York, before it was a PBS station in the 1960s, and it was called USA Poetry. And he's got probably about two dozen uh, two dozen uh, videos up there. One of them was an hour and a half uh, documentary about Hart Crane. I think I put, sent it around on uh, maybe, uh, was it Facebook or something to people? But uh, anyway, you when you hear someone, like you hear Theodore Retke reading um, uh, Papa's Waltz, uh, or whatever, whatever it's called, his famous poem. You hear Berryman and his, his, his sort of drunken readings of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the, the dream songs, or you hear Anne Sexton or Plath or, or even, uh, no, I don't think there was Hart Crane, either, but if you listen, for example, to the few recorded versions of Wallace Stevens reading his poem, you know, The Snowman. You know, in, in, and you could say anything yeah, in the dead of winter. It's almost sort of like an American version of Alfred Hitchcock. He has that same kind of pausing, heavy. Uh, and it, it, when you read it, when, when you read uh, the words of these people, even if you've never heard their voices, you get a kind of sense of it. You know, uh, if I read E.E. E. Cummings, I get a sort of rat-a-tat-tat. Uh, uh, sort of like someone typing, you know, uh, the fire truck, the fire, uh, uh, that famous poem of his, or, you know, the plums in the, in the icebox are so cool and refreshing, you know, that famous poem about plums or pears or whatever it was. Um, uh, and, every, and then when you listen to them for the first time, quite often, uh, if you're very attuned to, to actually reading and, and, and getting uh, the, the, the subtle music of poetry, you often find out that's the way those people spoke. And E.E. E. Cummings spoke in a totally different way than Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath had that, that put on airs, the transatlantic uh, or mid-Atlantic accent, whatever they call it. You know, she's sort of like Catherine Hepburn, a, a déclassé Catherine Hepburn reading her poems, you know, and so that comes through. One thing I'll say is that I've always been, uh, I try not to uh, listen to poets reading their poems anymore, especially if it's, you know, poets that I uh, admire, because it's always been like pretty disappointing. Like it, it never is how I imagined it to be, probably because like I, I have this thing, like when I, when I read, I just like vocalize everything. So everything is kind of like already filtered through my head. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's just like a, a thing with me, but, but I, I've always been a little put, put off by, by hearing how, uh, uh, poets like tend to emphasize certain lines or words that I would, you know, either not emphasize or de-emphasize, or maybe I would emphasize others and not that. Um, so, oh, oh, oh uh, uh, since uh, since we're still sort of on the subject, um, like, w w what do you think about the idea of uh, 
the arts as they relate to sexual selection? Like, do you think uh, there are any theories or do you think it's even valuable to go down that road of like, you know, understanding perhaps the origins of art in some way through the lens of, uh, uh, of sexual selection? Like, do you think that's a dead end? Well, uh, certainly uh, if you look at the uh, artists, uh, great artists of some stripe, uh, they, they tend to do better with the female sex or vice versa, you know, should, I'm sure Anne Saxon had no shortage of uh, would-be suitors, at least the, to get her into the sack at least once. Um, but uh, in, in the sense that I don't think I don't think there was high enough art. I don't think there was enough artists a thousand, two thousand, five thousand years ago that people were going to be drawn to them. I mean, I was just thinking a, a few weeks ago about. The only thing that could explain, for example, the epicanthic folds in East Asians and why they predominate, even though epicanthi exist in other uh, other ethnic groups, is that there had to have been some chieftains many years ago, many thousands of years ago, that when they got into Eastern Asia, it became maybe an arms race with, well, I've got a, a woman with, with slightly slanty eyes, and the next chieftain, you know, a, a few miles away said, well, I've got, I've got concubines that have even slanty eyes, and it became a, a sexual arms race. I don't think you could have a similar thing artistically because, because that would, that would re require that the person making the sexual selection of this person with the artistic notion would have to understand that and understand that that's a good thing, even though there's no material benefit that's going to be gained in the shot. I mean, imagine if you're a chieftain and you're collecting uh, furs uh, from from animals, or you're or you're collecting uh, even trinkets made from uh, cod uh, or uh, fish bones or, or something. You might like that here or there. But I don't know if that's enough that that's going to prod any kind of sexual selection that you're going to get a, a higher density, perhaps, of artists in one group or another. I think that's just I think it's just random stumbling around, uh, so, sexually speaking. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think the randomness has to be a, a major uh, part of it. Although, you know, in a more limited sense, like, first of all, I can't imagine there being any real sexual selection when it comes to things like selecting for great art and great artists right like th that is just so beyond the conception of of most people that you know it, it just can't logically figure into this but i can imagine in, in a limited sense like if you live in a society and you're an artisan and, and you pr and you're producing uh you know like tools or you're producing even like you know statuettes of some sort um you know that might provide you some status so there might be some sexual selection you know involved with like uh, you know like feminine uh, status seeking that kind of thing um, but, but let, me, let me let me let me let me just uh, if we go if we go just scientifically uh you probably know these two people i'm going to mention they were married a guy named robert jarvik who had the first who did the first uh uh heart transplant or well, not the first he had the first i think heart valve he invented the heart valve very smart guy very uh, uh, uh heart surgeon and he married a woman called marilyn vos savant who at the time in the 80s and 90s had a column very similar to Dear Abby or Ann Landers, and she was billed as having the world's highest IQ, something like 206 or something. So two exceedingly intelligent people. I think they only got married in their 40s, so they didn't reproduce. But let's imagine they reproduced. Can we really think that they would have had some super genius, that they would have had an Einstein or, uh, or uh, uh, you know, uh, Marie Curie? If you look at people like a Thomas Jefferson, 
Thomas Jefferson appears in his timeline, and you can whether he was racist or not, forget that stuff. He, no one can deny he was a very intelligent uh, uh, human being. Uh, but before him, was there any any prior person in his time, his lineage that did anything? Black or white descendants, have there been anyone close to Jefferson? No. So if you took Marilyn Vosavant and Robert Jarvik and they had met in their 20s and let's say they had five kids and you took, you know, Joe, Joe Slobotnik and and you know Mindy Hoare 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 ass and you you they fucked and they had five kids. The chances of the the super couple and 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 the slobs uh, having a genius come are going to be virtually equal. Yes, there might be a slightly higher chance. Maybe the the the, the Jarvik and Vos Savant coupling would produce seventeen geniuses out of a million births. And the two slobs might only produce 11 geniuses out of uh, a million births. But the chances that they're going to produce someone who's just sitting on their ass with their hand down their pants like Al Bundy from Married with Children is going to be overwhelming in both cases. People don't want to accept that it's a total roll of the dice. I could tell you, genetically, when I found my my natural family, on the one side, my, my, my female uh, birth mother side, there were people who were, uh, I guess, a slightly, some slightly smarter than average, but they had my, I, my, my maternal aunt, uh, my birth maternal aunt, spent time in the nut house. She charted her family, and there was a guy in Wisconsin who was, uh, I guess, an alleged uh, meat cleaver killer. <laughs> On the other side of the family, I had inbreeding. I mean, I, 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 there's no way I, I, I'm not saying it to be proud or to be, to be, to be gruff, but there were people who had some severe mental problems, genetic problems. They were fat, out of shape. It was just a genetic mess. And out of that, I came. So total, total roll of the dice crap wise or crap, you know, it, 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 people, I don't think people fundamentally understand it. As I said, you could have you could have Albert Einstein fucking Marie Curie's brains out. He's probably going to end up with a Lucerle, you know, his real daughter that he put away in an institution who, who was all fucked up. There's just, there's just, it's a crapshoot. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When it comes to things like, you know, producing a super genius or whatever, or even like a, a more limited sense of like a highly intelligent person. Uh, you you can't just like think you're gonna engage in this kind of like weird you know eugenics experiment and come out on top like that doesn't work. But uh, you know I, again I, I do think that in a more limited sense like you could have a, a situation where uh, you have a sexual selection for specifically things like you know uh, um, you know the kind of creativity that would produce an artisan right or or you know like a, a toolmaker of some sort. Uh, or the or the creativity that would be required, and you know, it's a very limited creativity. But the kind of creativity that might be required uh, for becoming a lawyer, right, versus like you know a, a, a blue collar worker, right? Th- these are not the arts, and, and we we should not ever overemphasize what these things in fact entail. But um, you know, I, I I've often thought about like how how can we relate sexual selection to the arts and you mentioned the uh, the, the eye folds uh, you know it's interesting um the the idea behind that used to always be like you know like it's it's because uh, you have um you know people in the gobi desert or whatever and you know the the eye folds are, are, are meant to protect them against the, the glare of the sun and we know 
know now that 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 couldn't have been the case, right? You, you can't have that kind of environmental pressure to, to make that happen. You need some sort of a, a sexual uh, a selection explanation for, for something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really only there's really only natural selection which involves life and death, sexual selection, which involves reproduction, and then artificial selection, where we're, we're making, you know, 500 dog breeds or 200 cat breeds, uh, or we're changing uh, heavy-duty oxen into more malleable cows. That's the only three kinds that we know of on this planet, as far as I know of. Yeah, and... Um you know, back to this idea of like the uh, the ethics and the the lack of selfishness uh, in great art. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, uh, especially when I was younger, like I used to really just kind of dismiss whenever I read like stuff from Plato, like trying to uh, somehow conflate the, the arts uh, with with ethics. Uh, you know, he had his like negative views of poets. Poets need to be outcast from society, so on and so forth. Or even like more, more modern uh, people, like uh, Shelley. He has he has this uh, um, a famous essay, "Defense of Poetry," and I remember reading it as a teenager and thinking, you know, there's something really off here. You know, art is not you know merely ethics. You can't simply moralize about art, about the arts. Like uh, it's 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 very attractive to do. Like historically, people have always tried to somehow conflate. Uh, the arts with some form of morality, some ethical system. But the older that I get, you know, I, I think there definitely is something to those ideas. Like those ideas have been presented very crudely historically, but there is something to it in the sense that like, for example, uh, you can't have a, a great work of art that is like somehow selfish. Like to, to use like one example, if you're motivated by like personal revenge, let's say you hate somebody and you say, you know what, I'm going to like, you know, I, I'm going to try to destroy them in, the, in this work of art. If that is your sole motivation, right, just the, the destruction, you, that's not enough to produce a great work of art, right? Um, that's never going to be enough. You, you need something else there. You need something that's going to outlast you and something that's going to outlast your feelings of, of, of needing to, you know, one up somebody. But, uh, what I was getting at is uh, you, it was kind of like a throwaway comment but you said you know it's it's good to produce art um so when i when i try to uh, make this ethical connection i sort of mean this in like the nietzschean sense of obligation like you you use for like like like, like in, in the um in the camelot quintet for example you use an extract from one of your plays where you confront like a a, a woman that uh you knew back in uh, like the 80s, she went to a, to a poetry workshop with you. And, you know, you tell her like, you know, you, you used to be good with words. Like you had th this thing within you where you wanted to create and you stopped. That is a failing. And, you know, this is what I want to get at. Like there, when it comes to great art, there is something there that just very much feels like an obligation. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if you, if you have, if you have it within you to be a great artist versus like a mediocre journalist versus like a mediocre whatever, you have to be a great artist. Or even if you could be a great artist versus a great lawyer, you probably still have to be in that case a great artist. There, it, it, it's an ethical failing. It's a personal failing to to say I am not going to do this great art because you know what? Like okay, fine, maybe it'll be good for the world, but I would personally prefer to live my life differently. It's like at a certain point, it's like. Who gives a shit how you want to live your life? Like you don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't even even know that fact. Um, 
uh, back to this question of um, aesthetics, like versus art, you know, like there's just very often this confusion, you know, like sometimes when I try to read like the philosophy of art and the philosophy of aesthetics, uh, you have to be very careful because uh, you think you're, you're reading about the arts, but people just spend so much time uh, on uh, uh, aesthetic experience, right? And aesthetic experience, it's it's not the same thing as the arts. Like uh, one one obvious example is, is something like math, right? Um, uh, math could have a certain kind of elegance to it. The formulas uh, have an elegance to it, but what it communicates is very different from from what art can communicate. So that by itself uh, does not allow it to be art in and of itself. Uh, same thing with uh, something like uh, computer programming. Like uh, uh, th there is this kind of you know uh, sense in computer programming where you have to write you know clean, concise code that does what you want it to do, that doesn't do more than what you want it to do or less. And there's also like an objective quality there in the sense that if you could write computer code that uh, takes uh, fewer lines, um, and 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 you can make distinct, and you and you can make distinctions to the point where you know one is more optimized than another. That has objective material bearing in the sense that uh, there is this kind of material bedrock reality. But again, what is it really communicating? Right, like the the thing that a computer program might communicate is just infinitely less complex and less meaningful uh, than an artwork. But simply because there is some element of creativity there, simply. Because because there is some element of aesthetic experience there, people make this conflation between aesthetics and aesthetic experience and art uh, way too often. Um, I don't. I don't have much else to say on that. On that though. Yeah, like another level though. Like you know, if you can't do like if you can't do anything uh, other than you know like make fonts. I mean. In a sense, it's better than nothing. In the same way that that the arts, like the art, starts starts with with with, uh, with with nothing, and and it builds from that into like this entire like you know cathedral of meaning. Um, something like creating a font, it, it's far more limited in that sense. But it, it, you know, if you could contribute something versus nothing in life, right? You're going to have to always go with something, um, even even if it's like. Yeah, even if it's like pure self-absorption, like if all that you can do is like be a bodybuilder, well, being a bodybuilder is still objectively better than being a fucking couch potato, all else being equal, right? If like, you know, intellectually, you're the same as a couch potato. If if you're not any artistically better or worse than a couch potato, I mean, be a bodybuilder instead of a couch potato, right? Like if all else being equal. Yeah, like one thing I'll, I'll say about that is like, so first of all, when it comes to comedy, like, I mean, we've been over this, like in, in my Woody book, right? We, you know, there's the classic uh, separation of the comedies from the uh, dramedies from the dramas. But, you know, like uh, on a fundamental level, like, okay, so, so Kurt Vonnegut is a, is a great novelist, right? And, um, uh, but without comedy, first of all, like the, the works wouldn't exist, right? Like you, you need, he needed that comedy to make so much of that work. Uh, a lot of the greatness, the, the drama did in some ways emerge or was filtered through, through the lens of comedy. So you need, you need, uh, uh great comedians in, in that regard. Related to this, uh, I mean, you know, we have all these assessments now, uh, the strike me as objectively correct. And, you know, it, it, it like what I, uh, when I first came to Cosmoetica, one of the things that surprised me was, okay, so if, if this is if this is the way that things are, why did it take so long? Why did it take like literally to the year like 2000, I think is when you, you started Cosmoetica. Why did it take that long for 
good criticism to emerge. And, you know, we don't even have to say great criticism, but like consistent criticism, like even, even like the best, uh, you know, books uh, of like, you know, poetic criticism, you know, over the last century, they tend to be like pretty inconsistent. You can't, you can't like open up a critic and say, okay, this is a guy that I can trust to make good assessments, reasonably speaking, you know, most of the time. Why do you think uh, that criticism has taken uh, so long before it, it reached uh, this point? Uh, to get back to like Catullus or like Luke in Civil War, uh, these get accepted as, as a, a, a great art, you know, let's say a couple centuries after they're, they're done or even contemporaneously. Okay, if society accepts uh, uh, Civil War as a good poem or Catullus 51 as perhaps a, a great poem, why didn't that society even then or maybe a century after the fact, why didn't anyone coherently explain why that was in fact the case? Why is Catullus 51 a better poem than the uh, lesbian poem that, that, that it's a, a ba- uh, not the lesbian poem, the, the Sappho poem that it's, that it's based on? Um, like, like, like why, why didn't that emerge? Like if, if society accepted this as great and people are like, yes, 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 it's great. Why isn't there not a coherent reason provided by that same society? Society does tend to function that way, right? Like time does tend to select for good art. But um, even if that's the case, why didn't criticism alongside the selection for good art, like why did it never really catch up? You know what I mean? Like I would expect if we have thousands of years of, you know, maybe not truly great art like 5,000 years ago, but, you know, 2,000 years ago, I I think we have definitely examples of great art. I think there are some Catullus poems that are legitimately great, but but criticism never, ever caught up to the greatness of the poetry, even if the poetry was recognized.